Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Today, we are wrapping up our Being Normal series. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed getting to record it with all of the amazing guests we've gotten to have on the show this past month. Today, we are finishing up strong with one more word from one more amazing guest. Today, I'm joined by TC Randall, an ex-ER nurse who worked in the Emerge for over a decade and went off on leave for PTSD. He is now returning to work, and you can listen in to some of that journey as he shares about it today. He, while off, also became an author, and he wrote a book called The View from the Wrong Side of the Day. I will share it with you in the show notes. Please check it out. When I read it, it was funny as hell, while also shining a really significant light on the many, many problems facing the system. And it really speaks to his experience as an eMERGE nurse for such a long period of time. He really identifies and nails down some of the systemic issues that we face in this kind of work and in ways that are really thoughtful, but also in ways that really identify some practical ways that we could be doing it different and better. I loved that part of our conversation today really moved into that place he and I as well as we both try to figure out how to solve all the world's problems. Today, TC is joining me to talk about being normal in everyday life and bridging some of his experiences as a nurse who's been off on leave to identify some of the things that have been really hard in daily life, ways that those came about, and ways that we could, should, would protect them a little bit differently in an effort to have a bit more normal in our everyday living activities. So without further ado, here's TC. Welcome, TC. It's so great to have you back on the show. I've been so grateful to have you on a couple of other times before and continue to be so grateful for your book. I've recommended it to a number of people now as just a really solid voice of what it feels like to be in the work. So thanks for coming back again. No, no problem. I enjoy being here. It's been so great to have you the couple of times we've had you and I'm excited to chat today. I know we're talking about kind of the ways in which being the job being not normal causes us to wrestle in some of our daily living. But before we jump into that, I would really just love if you could share a little bit about yourself, the work that you have done, the work that you are doing, and some of what led you into the work. 
Um, so yeah, I was an emergency room nurse for 14 years, um, before I was, uh, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been off work on disability for three years now. Uh, yeah. and I'm just now getting back into the workforce. Um, I was, I did contact tracing from late last year until now. And then in the last week, I've just started a brand new position. So uh, very exciting. Yeah, with uh, geriatrics uh, specialty services. So It's exciting to hear um, this piece about kind of the transition out of work and then back into work. And I know that you're kind of feeling like that's been a really positive shift and it feels like things are headed in a really good direction. Yeah. And that's cool. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure it all out, but yeah, I'm heading in the right direction. Totally. Okay. Well, given your experience as a frontline nurse in Emerge specifically, but like take from whatever parts of your experience feel yeah. relevant, what do you see as common challenges for frontline workers that show up in their daily living activities? Like, what did you notice for yourself? What did you notice for those around you? Where do you see people get tripped up? Um, I think the the assumption that we have activities <laughs> is, is maybe a little bit uh, over ambitious. Okay. Yes. Um, I think, you know, when I first went off work three years ago, uh, one of the biggest, pro- one of the biggest realizations was that I didn't have anything outside of work. Yeah. Right? Like I literally didn't. Um, and that was very difficult because, um, you know, being off work and having my workplace be such a monumental emotional trigger. And yeah. then, but that was the only place that I knew people. Um, totally. And I didn't, like, I didn't have friends that weren't nurses. Yeah. <laughs> um, we talked about that risk a couple weeks ago. <laughs> right. And I got off work and suddenly had nothing to do. It was mm-hmm. literally like, you know, not that at that point I could have done much, I think, but it was just that realization that I had really never cultivated anything outside of work. Yeah. So when do you think that happened? Like, Had you prior to nursing not had a lot of interests or activities or hobbies or whatever? I've always been kind of an introvert, I think. Uh Um, For some reason, that seems a common thing. And I don't know so much about other like frontline sort of positions, but um, certainly in nursing, there's there's a lot of introverts. And so not only is nursing in itself exhausting, but that you're in an industry where you have to be extroverted all day long, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So it makes it very exhausting. (laughs) You get home and you're just like, everybody shut up. (laughs) Totally. and, and you tend to isolate quite significantly yeah. because you just don't have the, 
you, you don't have any peopling left in you. <laughs> totally. Oh, I love that you use the word peopling. I use that word in my house. I have no peopling skills left. I cannot people anymore today. Right. And that's um, that's a common theme I find in nurses, at least the, yeah. you know, the nurses that I talk to. Um, it's interesting that you were, because you were talking about like close relationships in some of your previous episodes. Yeah. And I remember um, I got married um, two days before I started working yeah. in the emergency department. And we separated about a year later. <laughs> And, um, you know, one of her, her biggest complaint was that, you know, I would come home and just completely shut down. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a whole lot of communication. And then I remember a few years, so a few years later, she actually went into nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I talked about this in my book. There was one point where I can't remember what we were doing. We were at a bookstore or something like that. And we were talking about the nursing program and she just looked at me and she goes, you know, now I get it. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Totally. That's the thing, right? Is it's hard to, it's hard to know the depth of done or peopled out or exhaustion or um, I talk often with my husband at home about like my mental load, like, I, he goes like, how are you so tired? You've done nothing but sit all day. Like you're paid to literally sit in a chair. And I'm like, I know. And I get that I don't have the most physically demanding job. My pedometer is very sad, but the mental load of the work that I do, the trying to track every nuanced expression to decide, are you going to go jump off a bridge later or not? Like it's, it's a lot and you're doing it hour after hour and in positions like yours, there's just so much in terms of assessing and trying to determine the next best steps that it, it does. It carries this level of exhaustion. That's really hard to just bounce back and out of when it's time to go home. Well, I don't think, um, you know, I remember reading something recently about this, uh, this guy had, and I guess he's a um, psychologist or something. And he was saying like, why do we think our brains float on a tether that's like mm-hmm. separate from us, from our totally. physical self, right? Um, the brain is actually a huge caloric sort of machine, right? Like it, yes. it takes yes. a whole lot of energy to maintain mm-hmm. that me- mental alertness and that just trying to, you know, all those emotions and everything else that yeah. takes energy. Same as running does. Um, yep. So I find it funny that we sort of have this idea that, you know, thinking doesn't is like a it's it's a non-physical job it's your brain yeah. is still attached right? totally. it still totally. requires the same stuff as your muscles and everything else do absolutely it's such a good point because you're right like the demand that that is is asking of us is very very high and for some yeah. people who are in first response and frontline work There's also a very physical demand to the job on top of the mental demand. So you kind of have both. Like I just have the one Mm. piece that I have to worry about. You guys are on your feet all day and running from patient to patient and having to deal with moving and flipping and right. Dealing sometimes with combative patients. I know policing, there's so much in terms of physical demand, firefighting, Mm. similar, right. Corrections work similar, right. Like there's just 
so much that's entailed in it. So you're you're hitting all of it, right? The physical yeah. and the mental and the emotional load of it all. Yeah. I think there's, I can't remember what the statistic is, but nurses walk like something like 12 to 20 kilometers a shift or something. Totally. Like I would believe it. Yeah. My, uh, I remember once I was, um, I had some trouble. I've got a, a torn meniscus in one of my knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not surgical or anything, but I was seeing my family doctor at the time. And he was, oh, well, you know, the solution to that, you need to walk more. <laughs> and I just <laughs> looked at him like, do you, do you know what I do? <laughs> yes. I don't think I could possibly do more than this. Yes, like oh my gosh, know, I'm, I'm I'm walking a lot. Okay? Yeah, like this is not my problem. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's funny. So I love that you've named a couple of the pieces because they are the ones that stand out to me too in terms of daily living, right? Like the feeling peopled out, yeah, and struggling to sometimes be like willing or open to connecting any more with humans um, can feel exhausting to imagine. I also think the piece about like the mental exhaustion and just the energy draw that the work is both mentally and physically and emotionally. I also think practically there's a lot of really significant things that I hear really commonly from first responders and frontline workers. One of the ones I hear a lot is just how hard it is to even have a hobby or an interest in part because of very practical things. Like when I work shift work, it's really hard to commit to curling that happens every Thursday night at 8 p.m. because my shift set doesn't let me commit to that. Yeah. Right. So it's hard to like strategically, practically line up a life that lives outside of my job. Yeah. Yeah. It does become very difficult to um, plan anything. Yeah. (laughs) And, and then you've got, um, you know, if you're doing like a four on four off rotation, it sounds mm-hmm. great until mm-hmm. you realize that, you know, the first day or even two after you get off your last night shift is the written off. Totally. Because you're trying to get back into some sort of like natural sleep rhythm. Yeah. Um, so you feel kind of, so you're feeling pretty out of it. Yeah. Um, so you basically still only have two days off and they're not, mm-hmm. it's not like Monday and Tuesday every week you get off. So yeah. you can't make plans that way. Totally. Um, well, that's the challenge, right? Is like, and yeah. if most of my non-work friends work normal people jobs, it means that I actually don't really get to see them either because yeah. they're working on the days that I will often have off. And even if, they're not working. I'm probably filling half of those days with like doctor's appointments and haircuts yeah. and dentist appointments and like all of the normal yeah. life things. Right. It's tricky to find the balance. Yeah. You know, and that in itself is physically exhausting too, because you're never yeah. quite that toll of, you know, night shifts and everything else. And your health is never a hundred percent when you're doing that either. And I think, too, we have to talk about the, just like the physical demands because, um, you know, first off, shift work is immensely hard on your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's all the physical demands of the job. Um, 
So you're, you know, you're walking, as we said, you're pushing, you're pulling, you're lifting, you're tugging, all these things. And it's, um, and you start to develop a lot of like pains in places you didn't have before you went into this work. Um, and so do it, you know, trying to find hobbies that are not, you know, playing it or not going to make things worse or yeah. you know you get up and you're like um oh i'd really like to take up you know archery but my back is just killing me today totally so not only is it the mental stuff but there's a real physical yeah. um, barrier there as well because it's you constantly you're constantly finding new aches and new yeah. new body parts that just aren't feeling a hundred percent. For um, sure. Yeah. No, I think you're I think you're nailing it. Those are very real um, limitations to what feels available to us yeah. when that's the reality. I also think there's like a flip side. So we know that over time, the impact of working in first response or frontline work gradually shifts a person's perspective where the intensity of emergency response starts to feel more and more normal, quote unquote, yeah. and normal life can start to feel really boring or disconnected, uncomfortable, foreign, and so on. Yeah. And I'm curious on kind of that flip side of things, how do you see some of those pieces play out in terms of being able to show up in normal-ish ways in daily life? Um, I think there's like, there's some things that I did notice and this goes all the way back to the start of my career, right? Like it's yeah. just trying to be, I remember being in university and, um, there was a thing going around where people in our university were like, oh, those nursing students are snobs. Look at them. They're, you know, every day in the lunchroom, they're off on their own and they don't talk yeah. to anybody else. And I remember thinking to myself, why would anybody else want to eat lunch with us? Yeah. Like, like <laughs> you know, we're sitting there sandwich and this guy had pus coming out of him. <laughs> <laughs> and we're still eating, right? And, yes, and totally. Like so, there is that sort of disconnect um, yeah. between us and other people, and certainly, yes. you know, even um, you know, family dinners and stuff like that. I have to watch what I say and things like that. My, my you know, my gag reflexes. Very non different. Yeah, very different from other. Uh -huh. people. Uh-huh, yeah. So I'm certainly, I don't think at the time I thought the outside life was boring or anything like that, simply because it didn't even mm. exist, right? Yeah. Was, um, certainly now I feel that more. Um, Interesting, okay. But, so what does that look like now? Well, as I'm, you know, as I'm going back into the workforce and as I'm feeling more, more managed mm -hmm. and stuff, there's, um, there's a big part of me that's like, yeah, I wish I could, you know, go back to that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So definitely it does seem a little less, um, there's certainly less adrenaline in my life now. <laughs> well, and isn't that just the word, right? Like, 
there is less adrenaline and the challenge with adrenaline is it's equal parts awful and totally addictive. Yeah. Like we can know that it's not awesome for us that we're living in this really intense, stressful state all the time. And we can feel like, man, it'd be so nice to just be a normal person. And yet to come down to normal can feel really uncomfortable. It's, I think, among the reasons most identified for why addictions rates are quite a bit higher for first responders and frontline workers than for the average population is because it's kind of the only way or a way, I guess, a, 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 a very specific way of trying to numb how uncomfortable it feels to go from the adrenaline to the crash after. Yeah, yeah definitely. And there's a, there's an almost sort of bipolar <laughs> totally. to it where it's like, you know, to go back to what we were saying earlier about that um, leaving work and having yeah. that sort of crash of, where, you know, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to deal with anybody. And um, you live life in this very sort of dichotomous Mm -hmm. relationship where you're either all on or all off. Well, and that's interesting because that was actually the piece in my head. Just again, kind of more practically, I think one of the things I hear from a lot of people who are working on the front lines is that even at home, that dichotomy shows up in really funny ways. Like, I'll come home and I'll look at my house and say, fuck it. And I'm just not touching anything. I'm not doing the dishes for like a week because I just don't care. But then I'll have a night where I can't sleep and I'll stay up frantically cleaning every inch of my house and almost in like a compulsive, like super not in control of myself kind of a way. And it is almost this piece of like, as as I, I experience these adrenaline highs and lows, my body is training for highs and lows. And mm-hmm. so it goes through these stretches, even in my home life, where I can't just sustain a semi-consistent level of engagement in my household. I kind of go from like manically engaged <laughs> to dropping off into this like abyss and just not touching anything. And whether that's, yeah. you know, housework or you know, interacting with my kids or interacting with my friends or like whatever it is that we kind of go through these ebbs and flows that just feel very extreme. Yeah. Well, but do they feel that way because they're right? But do they feel that way? (laughs) Totally. When we're in it, do we even know that that's what's happening? Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, and that goes back to, uh, again, when I first got off, and that, um, I don't think when I was in it, it even occurred to me. Yeah. Right. It was just like this is, you know, this is my life. This is what I have to do in order yeah. to survive it. And you don't really think about it at the time. It just and it. I think you mentioned in your questions about that whole normal how yeah. it becomes normal, right? And it's, right. And it really, and to the point where... Um, We're like blind to you how don't, it's normal. Yeah, you don't even see the other side of it. Hence the existence of this series. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, right? Like, if we don't yeah. talk about how it is not normal, we're never going to address it. Yeah. It's hard to address something we're not acknowledging. And so until we kind of like take a step back and look at it, it's really hard to see it for what it is. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious 
because you have now gone through this process yourself in your own kind of personal professional life of um, processing and recovering and working really hard at your mental health. And and hopefully I'm, I'm hoping are returning to work with a different capacity or plan in place for how to sustain what the work is going to be versus what it was like before. So having done some of that work yourself and just in your own kind of experience and exposure, I'm curious what wisdom you have to share for those who might want to be intentional in protecting their daily lives from this kind of impact to their daily living skills. So like what have you learned that people can be doing to come down off the work? So let's start with some of the things I've discovered recently. Sure. Uh, It's been really, as I'm going back to work, um, one of the things I'm working really hard on is not to do extra. Yeah. Um, so when I was when I started with contact tracing and being really aware of my own limitations, um, one of the things that was funny when I started contact tracing is that the perfection so the anxiety we talked a bit about this before the show started the anxiety really makes me a bit of a perfectionist right because i'm afraid to like not do my best because i'm afraid of the repercussions of that um coming back on me like somebody's gonna you know come and say boy you you suck (laughs) um no one likes that yeah and I know, and you know, the the I know it's not realistic, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm able to sort of push that little voice in my head aside and go, "No, you're not telling the truth." But it doesn't stop me from feeling it. So I found uh, when I first started contact tracing, they were really happy with the work that I was doing, and. Um, so one day they just put me up to the sort of next level of okay. um, they wanted me to be a um, team leader, which is sort of like a supervisor for the other callers. Um, and I was just like, no, <laughs> I do this good. Don't yes. move it. Right. Um, yeah. And so having that conversation about, you know, how, they were like, but you're so good at this. And it's like, yeah, because I'm anxious. Now you're making me more anxious by trying to put me into something new. So it was this whole thing. But just being able to say no, Mm. you know, I can't do that. And then, you know, the uh, when we went, when Omicron first hit, um, things went crazy at contact yeah. tracing. We went from, we, we were staffed for, I think, 100 calls a day, and we went to almost 500 Whoa, calls a day. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so there was an opportunity there to work pretty much every day if I had wanted. Uh-huh. Um, so I had to really consciously look at it and go, no, I'm not taking overtime shifts. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not doing extra. Um, as I'm starting this new job, I'm really cognizant of, you know, even though that perfectionist voice in my head is going, oh, you need to learn all this stuff and you need yeah. to do all these things. It's like during work hours. That is it. I am not staying yeah. late. I am not doing work at home. I am working yeah. from 8.30 to 4.30 and then putting it down. Um, and being really firm on that in my head. So I think that's, um, that's sort of like the first step. 
mm-hmm. uh, is to recognize what our limitations are and totally. to be honest about it and to say, you know, this is what I need to cultivate my life outside of that. I need to box this up and keep it in its box. Yeah. I mean, we need those kinds of boundaries, right? Like whether that's boundaries we're identifying outside of our own heads and saying to someone like, no, I can't do that. I'm not, I don't want to take the next promotion. I want to stay where I'm at or boundaries we're setting in our own heads, even just to say, nope, when it's lunchtime, I'm taking lunch and I'm not staying in this building. I'm making the choice to go outside of here and, and get fresh air or take a break from this. Yeah. So we yeah. need to we need to make sure we have those limitations. Um, yeah. You know, before we before I started in this job, there was a whole process of going through like the duty to accommodate and stuff like right. that. And we all sat down and we were very clear about what what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do, and just mm-hmm. making sure I had time for um, you know even simple things like I've got. A therapist who's supporting me through the process yeah. of going back to work, right? And yeah. not having to take time off from work yeah. and having it be a big problem to attend these appointments because it's like, totally. I'm not going to last here unless I do this. So yeah. let's make sure these these limitations are in place and set in stone, right? Yeah. Um, it's built right in there that they can't move me to other locations and other positions without my express approval. So. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and it's so nice when, I mean, it's nice. It's a trade-off. Nice is exaggerated. It is unique when we have a situation like yours where it's kind of that, like all parties, all stakeholders sit down together and we are actively working to, support you, right? That we're actively putting the limitations and restrictions on the table. We're actively participating in naming what that might need and exploring the process of how we're going to do that with you well, right? The challenge for those who don't go off work and have that experience of doing a GRTW kind of plan or who have done a GRTW and it was not done well, because Lord knows those happen a lot, is that we have to kind of establish our own sense of boundaries. We have to name what our own um, needs and limitations are. We have to self-advocate for some of those, whether that's in our own heads or with others in our workplaces. Mm. And so there's, uh, it's a lot to ask of ourselves and yet it Mm. is super important. And it's also tricky because it's an evolving thing, right? So Mm. like the boundaries I might need to set related to my work at a stage where I'm new in it versus when I'm starting a family potentially versus when I'm later in my career. Like those could look quite different because of the extra factors that are happening at that time that yeah. shape my world differently. Well, not only that, but I think there's a huge pressure on um, people in our industry, especially with, you know, since COVID has hit to sort of be, there, you know, oh my gosh, yeah. be working a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Um, you slackers, you want a day off? It's so unreasonable, <laughs> right? And it's and then this and it's not even necessarily spoken. It's you know, you take a day off and you know your coworkers are 
having an awful, awful day because they're, you know, like they're short, like four people and you're getting texts every five minutes from staffing going, please come in. Right. <laughs> um, we'll pay you so, so, so much. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Which I always found this funny because, you know, if I'm getting text saying, please come in more desperate, that is not something that's likely to induce me to go in because it's right. like I already know they're having an awful day. So mm-hmm. <laughs> why would why would I be motivated to be a part why of it? I subject myself <laughs> yes. to this. Yeah. If you're that desperate, I already know that they're four short. So yeah. me coming in, they're going to be three short, which is still, still hard. So, yeah, totally. Um, okay, so I love the boundaries piece. That's yeah. a great one. What else do you think is is a significant factor in protecting our daily lives and trying to find a bit more normal? Um. Oh, there's a whole bunch, I think. But they're again, they're just as hard, I think. Um, yeah. Forcing yourself to sort of find those outside interests is very yeah. important, right? Finding something, one thing that you can do. So have you found any? Oh, I found a couple. Um, the first thing I did was... Um, when I got, when I finally got my money from WorkSafe, mm-hmm. uh, it came, you know, they were, it took them almost three months. So it was a pretty hefty sum when it did arrive. So yeah. uh, I got a kayak. Nice. Um, and because I was like, I was like, I was in Costco one day and I'm um, just shopping and then I, saw they had these kayaks there and I'm like, I've always wanted to try that. (laughs) So I got myself a kayak and, uh, you know, just floated around um, local lakes and stuff. Um, Cool. uh, So, yeah, things like that. And then I wrote the book and discovered that, you know, writing is something that I enjoy. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so just like you know, finding anything outside, go, going totally. to the gym or like, you know, whatever it is yeah. that takes you out of that headspace. I think there's a few things you're kind of identifying in it. And one is this piece about being intentional about just doing something. Yeah. And it almost doesn't even matter what the thing is, just almost anything will count. Um, but it's really the the effort at doing as opposed to just like waiting for something to fall into our laps or hoping that it just is okay. It won't be okay if we don't do something to make it be okay. It has to be intentional, right? Yeah, it has to be intentional. It has to be intentional. Because if you're, um, you know, it's like the whole exercising when you're depressed Mm -hmm. dichotomy is that if you're waiting for the energy to exercise, Totally. Um, you're going to be waiting a long time. You don't have to go out and exercise and that'll give you the energy to sort of continue, yeah. right? There's, uh, there's a guy named James Clear who wrote a book called Atomic Habits. Um, yeah. And it's entirely about habit formation and the success of routines and things like that. And he talks about how we've got motivation all wrong, that we believe mistakenly that motivation is something that comes and then we do the thing. And he talks about how in actual fact, if you look at any people who are successful at anything, 
they will be the first to tell you that motivation is an inverse relationship. You do the damn thing and that (laughs) motivates you to keep doing the damn thing. Um, And he talks about how the fact that this continues to be a myth that exists in the world really just continues to sink people because we're waiting to just have this day where motivation and inspiration strike and if we're waiting for that day, we are going to drown waiting for that day. Yeah, yeah. especially when you're coming from this sort of all-encompassing work totally. life, right? Like yeah. it's, it just makes it that much less likely that that sudden burst of energy is going to come rolling in through the door like a like you've won the lottery or something, right? Probably about as likely totally. as winning the lottery. Exactly. You really need to... F- force yourself out of that headspace and go. Um, And it's not that hard. I mean, we all, I'm assuming we all had some sort of a life before nursing where Mm -hmm. we had, you know, interests and things like that. So um, for me, it was sort of a trip backwards to, well, you know, what was I interested in before all this began? Totally. I know one of the things I talk a lot about um, in my clinical work is this idea of close approximations. So um, an example from my own life is when I was a kid growing up, one of the things that I did as an activity and interest was I danced really competitively. And in a different life, I had plans to do that professionally, um, but it was not to be. So I like it's not easy to access high level more competitive level dance classes as an adult, unless you're like pro and I'm not, but I'm also not like, I want to join the mommy's tap class where no one can do anything. Like I don't want to do that either. So I spent some time thinking, what do I love about this that I can bridge to a different activity? And this is the idea of close approximation. So what I loved is that I could put a lot of physical energy into it and feel so much better at the end of it. It was expressive, and I also just love a strong beat. Like, I just love music. So I had a chunk of time where we had bought this really ugly table at a garage sale that was covered. The kids at the house had colored all over it with crayons. And so whenever I was, like, mad, and normally mad is when I danced best, Um, whenever I was mad, I would just go to the garage and sand the shit out of this table (laughs) and I would like crank some tunes and it was the best. And initially my husband, we were super broke back then. And so he wouldn't let me buy an electric sander. I had to do the whole thing by hand, um, which was extraordinarily rewarding. It's still our coffee table to this day and it's beautiful. But then when I bought, the the deal was, is if I completed this activity and still liked woodworking, that he would let me get the sander. When I bought the electric sander, it was like my favorite toy in the world. It vibrates at the same kind of like frequency as my feelings. (laughs) And so to like take it out into the garage, like my husband now knows if he hears the sander, like stay away, Lindsay's processing. This is not a great time to interact with her about anything in life. And I'm just out there like feeling my feelings with the standard, like, and it's all going to be okay when I come in and I shower off all the sawdust and then I will feel better and back in the world. Right. And it's not an activity I would have like thought I would gravitate towards. It's not a thing I ever would have expected myself to do, but it elicits similar 
pieces. And there's actually a lot of overlap in terms of how how dance felt and how this feels. Yeah. You know, there's something to be said for not just activities, but activities that allow us to vent or <laughs> like, yeah. you know, um, cause I, when I first started nursing, I used to game a lot yeah. and sometimes just, and I, you know, this sounds horrible, but coming home after work and just hopping on the computer, I'm going to kill things. Totally. <laughs> I healed everyone today and now I need to shoot everybody. Yeah. And that, you know, so maybe the outlet for some people is just like going to one of those, like, um, what are they called? Where they get, just give the, the anger the, rooms. Yeah, where they have like yeah. old furniture and baseball bats. I um, still want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I am being able to sort of, and I found the when I wrote the book, it was very much a similar sort of experience. Kind of that cathartic feeling. Um, that's, yeah, that's a much more polite way. Than, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's, it's being able to sort of vent and give that, you know, life, the middle yeah. finger kind of totally. vibe where it's, it wasn't just about getting my story out. Right. Like it was, mm -hmm. it was, it was almost a public shaming was, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. where I, why the book was so important for me to get out. It was yeah. like a, um, it was like, if you won't, you know, if you won't fix this, I'm going to take it public. Totally. <laughs> so it did feel really good to sort of vent that way. Yeah, um, totally. So, yeah, maybe a good piece of advice is for nurses to find that sort of outlet. Maybe it's yeah. martial arts or something. Something totally. where you can just go out and beat the hell out of something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, I think there's like a variety of activities that we need to figure out how to engage kind of to varying degrees, right? So like one might be, or a handful might be something that does feel like expressive and cathartic. Like it gets my energy out. It lets me vent this. It moves the energy out of my body, yeah. right? I think there's also things that are like uh, people who are in these kinds of professions, whether it's nursing or policing or corrections or social work or paramedics or fire, like all of the first response frontline work kinds of people are all um, people who have very high expectations of themselves and yeah. tend to be able to perform at very high levels at lots of the things that they do. And so one of the ways that we tend to kind of sync ourselves is with a very high sense of need for productivity. And I feel this. And I think one of the ways we can wrestle is feeling like I don't have the energy to do the dishes, but I also don't feel like I can relax if I'm not doing something. And so often we'll tend towards needing to be like busy somehow. And so can we, like whether that's gaming or I found I recently actually taught myself how to crochet also not a thing I thought I would be doing. I'm making a sweater. It will eventually someday be done. I don't know when that day will be. But it's something that keeps my hands occupied, even if I have a show on in the background or music on in the background or whatever, that my brain has to keep track of. My brain has to keep count. It has to remember where I am in the pattern. It feels productive. I see it grow each time I'm working on it. That feels meaningful. And it lets my brain off the hook for feeling like it has to give a shit about the dishes because <laughs> it's doing something different. Yeah. 
I also think there's in our professions, there's one of the most exhausting things is there's this forced positivity that we have to do. Oh, name it. Because we're dealing with like people who are, you know, oftentimes having the worst day of their lives. Yes, Um, on repeat. And, you know, like I remember having a student and um, we had a patient who was in the process of dying and she started to break down and I said, okay, you know, take a few minutes, collect yourself, but then we need to go back in there and you can't be doing this in there. Yeah. In there we are. Yeah. You know, we are there for the family. We're there and we have to put a, I wouldn't say positive spin because, but we have to be the center. We have to be steady. Right. We have to be the center. We have to be steady. We can't, you know, um, you know, if you're dealing with um, a therapy client, you can't be like, well, that's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You, you, you You need to be that supportive center. Mm-hmm. that they can sort of, you know, cling on to. Totally. Um, and that takes a toll. So, um, you know, maybe there's something to be said, too, for being able to let out that sort of negative part yeah. of, you know, what's sort of going on in our heads. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. We're not, um, we're certainly not all positive. <laughs> Well, I mean, right? Like, we're human. I think the hard part is, uh, and we were talking about this the last several weeks around relationships that we have, is that it tends then that we um, gravitate towards others who are in the work because they feel this shared sense of, yeah, I get that. I get what you had to kind of like stuff in order to put on the face for the family in that room. And I get that there's stuff you're coming out of there with. And yet at the same time, gravitating towards those people tends to mean that we only hear those stories because equally they're sharing theirs with us. So we can kind Mm -hmm. of like traumatize each other vicariously. Um, It also means that we tend to kind of stew in the negative, right? On the flip side of it, where so much of it becomes about the venting or taking the space for that, that we lose track of people who have a different experience of reality, right? So we'll gravitate so strongly to those relationships that will fail to form or we'll lose track of the relationships where we don't feel that sense of being gotten. And as we do that and we lose those normal people relationships, we also lose our access point to a mirror that says that there's a life out there that isn't just this. Yeah. And I think too, there's, um, you know, you start to develop trust issues too, right? Because it's, um, you know, it's like, but they call that cop mentality where it's like, all you see is awful. So that becomes your world, right? Yeah. Um, This is now normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody's, you know, everybody's awful. Everybody's like doing things to each other and hurting each other. Right. It becomes very easy to sink into that place where it's like, I don't trust anybody who I don't work with because they're awful people. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Or like humanity at large. Right. Which is, I think, the risk of 
things like burnout and compassion fatigue and PTSD and things like that is that it, it generalizes, right? So it'll start that I'm like, you know, tired of or traumatized by this like one thing, right? It's that one event or this one experience. I know it isn't, but like, let's imagine. And if it were just that one thing, it would be okay. But it like grows and it starts to generalize itself out further and further and further. So now it's not just that I see death at the hospital. It's that I see, you know, I went to Superstore and a guy had a heart attack. So now it's there. And now that means it's everywhere. And then it's like, then there's the news. And then there, and it just gets so big that it feels like there is no other reality than this one. And so maybe the, like, so for the third sort of thing of Mm -hmm. like things that we can cultivate, um, I think really working to cultivate that um, sense of empathy within the jobs that we do really sort of provides a cushion for our Mm -hmm. psyche um, and keeps us connected. Um, I know it's something that we all struggle with. Um, It's very easy to get, you know, compassion fatigue and that sort of like distancing ourselves from the patients where it's like, oh, God, it's them again. Or Totally. uh, I remember saying to one of one of my fellow nurses was um, talking about a patient who came in frequently Mm -hmm. and was just like, why, why, why? And, um, And I and I said something about. You know, when we see when we see a child who's abused or and we're like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, like I could just see where this kid's life's going and it's yeah. so horrible. And, and then when they do grow up and that is, mm-hmm. you know, their future, it's like, what's wrong with that guy? Oh, <laughs> All totally. of a sudden, the, the whole script flips where it's like, what's yeah. wrong with him? Why is he behaving that way? Totally. Uh, so really trying to to sort of cultivate that connection to people. And one of the things I've really tried hard in my whole life is to sort of always look at like even things where it's like, what is going on there? Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I've always tried to sort of maintain is that why? Why is mm-hmm. it going on? Um, well, and there's something to be said for the like, how in our daily lives we're narrating, like we're constantly concocting stories, right? And we by and large believe them to be true and accurate, but a lot of the time they're just stories we've made up to fill gaps, right? So I talk with people often about, there was a time in my life where I was super frustrated with people who would speed um, inappropriately, like or drive in ways that I felt were risky, like where they would pass me even though I'm going like 10 over the speed limit, like bugger off, what the hell's your problem? But I was bothered to the point where I actually started considering like following these people home to to yell at them. And that was where I knew that it had gone too far, right? That like how I feel about this is now no longer appropriate or normal. It's it's excessive, right? So I remember this one day being passed by this guy. And I don't know where the thought came from, but the thought was, Well, I mean, maybe he's like racing because his wife is in labor at the hospital and he's got to get there real quick. And the the weight that was lifted off of caring about him and his actions was remarkable. Like it just didn't matter because the story, true or not, does not even matter 
It was sufficient for my brain to let go of it and not feel like it needed to perseverate on seeking justice and ensuring the goodness of the world. Because I told a story in my head that was sufficient for my brain to feel like, yeah, that's a pretty good reason. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just as likely as anything else. Yeah. And I recognize that that can feel like a bit of a leap. But to some extent, that's what we're doing all the time is we're, we're concocting stories. The challenge is, is when the, the type of work you do becomes normal, it skews the types of stories we'll tend to tell. Yeah. Right? So we have to be careful about offering ourselves alternative options right? Yes, it could be that this person is a criminal who's escaping arrest right now, or he's trying to make it to his poor wife who's in the hospital trying to have her baby, (laughs) right? And like either one of those are probably equally possible. And it's probably neither of them, right? But like, it's just what we're holding on to. Yeah. And sometimes it's just the fact that that's that's his one moment of control in his whole life. Totally. The fact that he gets to speed and nobody gets in his way. Totally. Right? Well, and that's the piece is like, I I think empathy is a piece of it, but I actually think it's kind of this, how do we let ourselves off the hook for caring so much about things that at at the end of the day don't presently have a direct impact on me in my life? But if I tell this story in a given way, it's going to carry with me. I'm going to be pissed at that guy all night. (laughs) right i'll be thinking about it but if i can tell the story in a way that lets it go out of my head a little bit i'm maybe not carrying so much weight yeah well and i think um yeah i mean that's a big you know i grew up with a very uh with a mother who was very unbalanced (laughs) Mm. um and uh, there came a point in my adult life where there was a realization that she was doing the best that she could with the tools that she had. Yeah. Right? Um, there was a realization, I think, that forgiveness and, you know, opening your heart in that sort of way doesn't necessarily mean that the other person is a good person or they're a nice totally. person. It means that I don't need to carry that around anymore. Yeah. Right? And that's yeah. a huge... Um, piece of any of this is that abilities that sort of let go and the the irony was that once um i had made that step i was able to step away from my mother and say yeah but i still don't you know i don't want a relationship with you because it's not good for me totally Um, so it was a real turning around point so i think that that being able to step back and look at a person's at that person's point of view and go you know what's sort of coming on here and yeah um and being able to step out of it and, be, and look at the other person as a person and i think yeah. that goes a huge long way for nurses to be able to and anybody in healthcare to be able to step back and go this is you know this is not a frequent flyer or a drug seeker or any of the other levels that we have this is a person who's dealing with something that's unique to him or her they have their own story and one of the things that we in nursing have the hardest time dealing with oftentimes is the personality disorders um and when they when they come in as patients and stuff, and uh, the realization that 
personality disorders are almost always trauma-based, right? And so uh, there was an episode of VR where um, somebody was complaining about one of the patients and, oh, Mrs. Mrs. Smith, she's so hard to deal with. And one of the other doctors was like, as hard as it is to deal with Mrs. Smith, imagine how hard it is to be Mrs. Smith. Totally. Well, and I I love, so it's funny to me that the things you've outlined today, so boundary setting, and then the piece about like intentional kind of self-caring, coping activity-based behaviors, and then this piece about kind of empathy and contextualizing people are all actually really significant facets. They're all modules in the resilience training course that I have right because they are they're the fundamental pieces and I love that you've gleaned these pieces just through the course of your experiences and to be able to name those offhand as we have this conversation is just so fantastically cool um I think one of the reasons that we created the beating the breaking point course is because we wanted to map that out we wanted to make it tangible and practical because the hard part is is in a one hour episode that we're going to do today, we can name those and we can know that people will go away from today and feel some amount of able to enact aspects of those. But to actually like dig into them and what it looks like to put it on and try it out in your life is so much bigger and harder. And so when we put together the course, it was with the intention of having it be this very like mapped out guide that walks you through the step by step of it. Because otherwise, we kind of do feel like we're shooting in the dark, kind of going like, I know I have to set some boundaries here, but what the hell does that look like? And how do I do that? And what do I need boundaries around anyways? And how do I identify that? And right, like, I know I need to do some activities to help myself cope, but curling's on Thursdays, and I'm not really, we feel so stressed by the limitations that we experience that we can have a hard time seeing outside of that. So I love that you've developed some tools in that yourself and mapped that into your own life. And I hope as you return to work and experience this next stage of adventure that you find ways to continue holding those and tying them in, bridging them into the life that you're building now. Yeah. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I want you to talk a little bit about your book because I think, and the reason Mm -hmm. I reached out to you for today's episode is because a view from the wrong side of the day talks so well about how not fucking normal this job is. Um, And and really, all of the things you talk about in that book, while specific to nursing, all of them echoed these generalizations to every other helping professional I've ever encountered. Yeah. So while specific, it's also really not. And I love that you also mentioned earlier that it was a bit of a like stick it to the man kind of an effort. Because <laughs> that always makes me really happy. <laughs> Well, and you have to remember, too, like the whole, um, I didn't start writing the book until I'd been off work for almost two years. And Mm -hmm. it was because another coworker of mine had gone off work with the exact same thing. And looking at those intervening two years is just, you know, wasted time because it's like, yeah, where's the solutions? Why, you know, we're two years on. And nobody has nobody has changed yeah. anything. And yeah. now here we are, you know, almost almost four years ahead, mm-hmm. and this still and it's gotten worse. Yeah. Um. You know, there's a real. 
I heard a statistic the other a while ago about um, new nurses now coming out of university are only staying in the profession for about two years. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they're going through four years of university incurring, you know, like thousands yeah. of dollars in debt and they're coming out two years in, they're going, no, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And COVID is certainly, but I don't think COVID really was like, you know, it wasn't a catastrophe. It was a preventable, mm-hmm. you know, if we'd have taken some of these lessons that we've learned and applied yeah. them. I mean, COVID was just a really fantastically large spotlight. Yes. Right? That like in and of itself, yes, very hard. No one would minimize that COVID's been really hard. But had there not been so many cracks already existing yeah. within the systems, it likely would not have been as significantly destructive. Or might not have been so destructive at all. Right? Yeah. If we'd have... Um if we'd have had contingencies in place, those could have been drawn upon quite easily. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I see us going forward without necessarily learning those lessons. So yes. So read my book. (laughs) (laughs) That's the summary. If you want to feel totally normal and being not normal, read the book and it'll feel like, a day at home it'll feel like all the familiar things well i think because you know one of the things i tried really hard to do in the book was look at these solutions and look at how we can sort of look at the system and go no this is i know you make some solid recommendations you could not make a I I could not make up a system like this if I was like if I yeah. just finished off my second bottle of tequila. Right. Right. <laughs> like, right. I could still do better I could than this. Still make a better system than this. Um yeah. it's designed to fail. Yeah. Um and so yeah, I really wanted something positive to come out of this. Yeah. And this is how we prevent it. This is how we Make it so yeah. that this doesn't just happen over and over and over. Um, well, it's like solid in theory. Yeah. The hard part is our capacity to control the systems to make it happen. And I think that's where I end up falling back to why things like this podcast and the Beating the Breaking Point course yeah. and some of the other things that we're working on, why they feel like they matter to me. Because at the end of the day, the people I see can't control any of those systems. They don't have the ability to do that, right? And what they do have control over is how much they let that system infiltrate every facet of their lives and who they are and how much they permit the systems to rob them and their families of joy. And And how insipid that process is. It is literally in the again, use this analogy in the book yeah. about the frog and the pot yeah. of blue water, right? Um, totally. And if you turn up the heat gradually, the frog just sits there. And I think we're we're all the frog. Totally. <laughs> we, just, we, we get into this these positions and then we just sit there in the boiling water and go, well, this is normal. 
this is well and not only that but like we gleefully hop into that pod <laughs> right like that's the really interesting thing and i think that's part of why it's so hard to to hop out even when we recognize hey i'm fucking boiling to death right like we can recognize it at some point and still feel trapped in it because when i got in i got in so enthusiastically it was it was out of noble intentions of making a yeah. difference and helping and these pieces that are real and true and awesome but this system, again, it's designed to fail. You're right. It's built with so many cracks already in it that it is almost impossible to make it all the way through. It's like a really shitty obstacle course that's intended to collapse <laughs> on you, yeah. right? And so it, it is this very tricky thing to navigate. And if we don't have our eyes open about that when we walk in the door and we're kind of in this glossy honeymoon phase of, I'm going to save the world and help everybody. Yeah. Right. Like we run a lot of risk in that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it's, um, you know, one of the, I just suddenly thought of this analogy yeah. that I came up with a while ago and it was meant as a joke, but I see now how, like, cause I was thinking about the beginning, like of um, the first Indiana Jones movie, right? Like yeah, it, yeah, okay. where, he goes, where he goes into the, that hidden temple and he's trying to get yep. the golden idol and there's all yeah, these and he has to put the sand on. The and I thought about like what what happened like there must be you know this idol must belong to like a tribe or something like that and mm -hmm. they must need access to it every once in a while <laughs> they didn't they, they put it in this cave to protect it but surely they need to go in there every once in a while yeah. and get it and how does that work like you know, oh, we lost another three priests yesterday trying to get the idol. Oh. Or like, um, and so I was making a joke about, you know, because it was, it was right around Christmas time. And I was like, it would it would be like me sending, you know, somebody, oh, go down to the basement and get the Christmas decorations. Only watch out for the swinging axe at the bottom of the right. stairs. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah. I, and when you were talking earlier, um, about the really shitty obstacle course yeah like it really brought so we're we're intent on getting this golden idol that is yeah. our career and yeah. we're you know in the meantime there's like spikes coming up out of the floor right. and it's and it's stuff that really doesn't need to be there yeah well and you're right like it doesn't need to be there but then if it is there how do we safeguard ourselves to the best of our ability recognizing that it's there yeah. Right. Like, and I think that's the hard part is I agree with you. Systemic change needs to happen. Yeah. And I think my hope, if I'm totally honest, is that if we can do enough work with people who have the capacity to eventually be in those positions of power down the road, yeah. maybe we can influence that someday. Yeah. But I don't know that it changes on a dime anytime soon just because. Oh, no. And I think right? it's. Um, I think first off, there has to be that intent again, yeah. like, and it has to be, um, we have to be in a place where we can do that work. Yeah. Right? You can't, um, I'm not sure the system can be changed from within because once you get with, from within, you're just beaten down on such a regular basis that how do you, yeah. so unless we're unless we're intentionally taking some of these strategies and saying yeah. you know i need something outside of this work and yeah. 
coming from a place where we're starting to feel whole again. Yeah. Um, we're not going to have the energy to alter the system. Yeah. It's just not going to get done because we're going to be like, hey, yeah. Yeah, I, could, I, I yeah. could do something about this, but I'm too tired. Well, and I think like not just I'm too tired, but also like I'm ill-equipped, right? Like part of the problem is that the people who stay in the system are the people who to some extent have been willing to reduce or lose their humanity to the work to some extent, like to be so kind of cut off from that empathy we were talking about earlier and the willingness to have boundaries and be intentional. And so part of it is that they actually just don't access some of the problems the same way because they, they don't feel it the same way, but that, that comes with a sacrifice. They're also often the ones who have faced multiple divorces or whose kids don't particularly like them or struggle with addictions because you can't turn that off without sacrificing something, right? On the flip side, keeping your humanity intact allows us to be informed by those experiences and guide a process that if we can do our own work, we can then carry into a systemic level of work, which would be cool you're right that it's it's really tricky unless you have a group of those people who are all equipped with skills and and an understanding of like what we're here for and what the goals are and what we need to be doing about this right like if we're not on the same page and we're coming in with very different capacity or equipping to begin with it sets us off in the wrong direction right off the hop but if we yeah. can like i think that's my like my mission in my head is super unreasonable, but it is anyways, is like if we can cultivate a generation of helpers who are informed in how to help themselves, they might be able to gather (laughs) and help the system differently. But until we learn how to do this for ourselves, I don't know that we will know how to apply that on a scale that is so much bigger and broader. Yeah. And I also think that if we're coming from, a, if, if we cultivate a generation of helpers that is able to help themselves, the system will change organically because it has to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's just going to be, this is the way things are done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, yeah, like I think the, the system will just sort of grow out of that. Right? Like it's yeah. because the definitions will change as mm-hmm. more nurses come in that are more able to cultivate their own relationship with themselves as well as with the job. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the job itself will change to accommodate mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, and I think you're right. To some extent, it's a bit of a like supply and demand issue, right? Like if we have a generation of, for example, nurses who all are boundaried, right? Who all identify and advocate for boundaries for themselves. The employer, even if it remains broken and unhealthy, at some point has to adapt to that because right now we have so many people who aren't boundaried that it's really easy to just say, oh, you greasy wheel, you get out of here. We don't need you that badly because we've got a whole bunch of other people we can replace you with um, who won't be sticky about these things and won't make noise and won't complain and will just be really grateful for a job. And so right now there's kind of this replaceability thing that interrupts this. But if we had an entire generation of, again, as a working example, nurses, but not specifically to nursing, 
that came in and shared a fundamental value of what what we deserve and how we deserve to be treated. And there's no one to replace that that isn't also like that. At some point, we, we need to meet the demand. And so we will have to adapt to the market. And I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, even amongst all this awful stuff that's happening right now, Um, one of the things that always sort of gives me hope is when I look at, you know, millennials catch a lot of flack, Yeah. but I see their, the value systems that they're coming in with now. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think the world is going to change very much. Like, um, you know, people are like, oh, they're, you know, millennials are lazy. No, they just have a really healthy appreciation for work-life balance, right? Yeah. Totally. um, So I think, you know, people, nurses are coming in and going, no, I'm not going to do this kind of work. I'm going to, this is what I want. And you can either accommodate me or I'm going to find a way to make it, you know, like I'll just go casual or I'll work when I want. Well, can you imagine if those people eventually made it into positions of leadership where they could lead from a place that's informed from that position? And I see that, you know, across the board, um, there's going to be there's going to be huge changes. And I think how any industry is run, because yeah. I think there's a lot there's, there's going to be a lot less um, work is your life. You will work until the day you die. <laughs> right. That mm. mentality is sort of falling by the wayside, I think, right now. And, Um, Well, and that mentality, I often talk with clients about like historical context of some of these pieces that feel culturally normative. And so much of that is a generation informed by depression era. Right. And so like it made sense for the timing that it made sense within. And yet our world continues to evolve and adapt and change. And we have to evolve and adapt and change with it. And just because it's normal doesn't make it healthy. Right. So just because that work life balance piece from a depression era informed place was normal doesn't mean that it was good for anybody. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I really see. So maybe a lot of these new healthcare professionals coming in are are going to bring with them a lot of new ideas. And it's totally the system is going to succeed or fail on how it adapts to those. (laughs) Oh, we pray and hope. I love it. I mean, TC, I feel like we have started in this piece about daily life and activities and we have gone into solving the world's problems. And I (laughs) love that that is the freedom that this podcast holds. I don't know if people are still listening to us talk at this point or if they've turned us off because it's too long, but I don't even care (laughs) because it was fun. It was fun to talk to you and try to solve the world's problems. I am so glad that we get to have opportunities like this because I think that this is also part of it. Like part of how we change systems is by connecting and bridging ideas. And I think when we can kind of bolster each other up, we stand a chance differently than when we feel like all we're doing is bitching and venting with each other about how hard it all is. When we can kind of talk about like, but how do you imagine it looking different? And what would we do differently? What would have to change? How would you imagine that looking? It invites a very different kind of discourse. And I so value that you join me in that because <laughs> it's fun to do with you. Well, and I think it's um, the conversation has to include both. 
right? Mm -hmm. We can't say we need to fix this without saying, well, this is really horrible. Totally. Um, but you, there's no point in saying, well, this is really horrible without this is yeah. how we do things differently. Or this is, these are my suggestions yeah. for moving forward, right? And that was- I mean, that's the thing about life, right? Is it's very rarely all or nothing it's almost always some amount of gray. Yeah. So you're right. It does need to be both. We need to have space to name the shit, but we also need to have space to to be willing to be creative in considering what a solution could look like. Yeah. I super appreciate your time, TC, and your thoughts um, and, and wisdom and experience. And I also really want to encourage everyone listening to go check out your book because it's fantastic. I found myself laughing out loud at various points and that doesn't happen easily. So... Yeah. It was great. Can I say one more thing, too? Of course. Um, I don't normally do this, but there's another book that I'd really like to recommend for everybody out there. It's called uh, We're All Perfectly Fine. I cried. I, 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 I wrote to her and I was like, I really hate you right now because I'm just bawling my eyes out throughout this entire book. But in a way that felt helpful. <laughs> Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Very uncomfortable. <laughs> fair. I mean, sometimes our best work feels very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Cool. I super appreciate that. I have not heard of this book. So I'm going to go check it out and I will be sure to include it in the show notes so people can find it easily. So thanks for that. I always love a good suggestion. Yes. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, take super good care and we will hopefully have you on again sometime soon. Okay. Thank you very much. Before we wrap up, let me jump in and say one more really big thank you to TC for taking the time to join me for this conversation. It was so much fun. I feel like we could have gone on for way longer. I'm not sure that anyone would have wanted to listen to us for much longer, but I feel like we could have gone on for quite some time. As we wrap up today, I do want to remind you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback, either for me or for any of the guests you've heard from over the past month. You know that I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests, and my guests would love to hear from you if there are things that stood out to you about pieces they shared or if you have feedback to offer to them. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. It brings me so much joy to hear that this podcast makes a difference in your lives, and I so value when you guys take the time to reach out and let me know how it's going for you. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, where you can follow me or tag me, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. Links to all of those things are available in the show notes if you want to just make it easy. I need to tell you again that I'm so grateful that many of you are keen to share about Behind the Line and spread the word to others you know on the front lines. It's been incredible these past couple of months watching listenership explode. And it is so thanks to you guys. Thank you so much for sharing. Know that we can be found on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes or subscribe to our email list to hear from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. You'll find all the details you need in the show notes, along with links to our free Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide, which is a fantastic tool to help facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. 
We make all of these different tools and resources available to you because the work you do matters so much to our communities. But more than that, you matter. You as a person and you as the person you are to your family matters. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, but also in your very real and meaningful life outside of the work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.